Today from the Global Lane, Nigerian Christians kidnapped, women and children slaughtered while they sleep. It's marching quickly towards genocide. We're gonna look back and we are gonna wish we had done more. COVID-19 restrictions and rising anti-Semitism in New York. To uh, take particular and sometimes singular focus only on a particular faith community is deeply uh, distressing. Why a growing number of Hispanic Americans may vote to re-elect Donald Trump. And Election Day 2020, how would Jesus vote? And it's all right here on The Global Lane. The United States and its allies may have defeated the ISIS caliphate in Syria, but Islamic extremists are alive and well and spreading terrorism and evil to other parts of the world. Most notably in Africa, where in late September, a Boko Haram breakaway group aligning itself with the Islamic State attacked a convoy killing 11 Nigerians. American protesters take to the streets and chant Black Lives Matter, but Nigerian Christians wonder where are the demonstrations for them as they face genocide? Well, the co-authors of the new book, The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa, say the world must speak up. Here with us to explain are the Reverend Johnny Moore and Rabbi Abraham Cooper. Reverend Moore is a member of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and president of the Congress of Christian Leaders. And Rabbi Cooper is associate dean and director of the Global Social Action Agenda at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Johnny, let's begin with you. Uh, Christians in Nigeria are under attack not only from Boko Haram terrorists, but also Fulani militants. This has gone on for some time now, so why the urgency? Is it genocide? It's marching quickly towards genocide, and the situation is getting worse. It isn't, it isn't getting better. I mean, our, our book mainly includes stories of victims in the last couple of months. We, we went to Nigeria right before COVID-19 shut down the world. We wrote it incredibly quickly, and we're just yelling in every direction we possibly can to get people paying attention. This situation is, uh, and unfortunately, we're gonna look back and we are gonna wish we had done more, I'm afraid. Well, Johnny, even our State Department, I know, uh, has said that uh, this isn't religious. This, this is just, you know, ethnic, you know, disputes between different tribes and so forth. It's monetary. Uh, what do you say? Well, look, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we went to Nigeria, because this is the big debate in the United States. What is the reason for it? And we, we came clearly down on one side. It, it's obvious that there is a religious component to it. No question. When you have terrorists yelling Allah Akbar as they burn down the homes of Christians and churches, I mean, clearly uh, there, there is religious extremism involved. Uh, but, but what I'll tell you is, you know, I, at least I came away thinking this whole argument about why this is happening is kind of an irrelevant argument when it's all said and done. The fact of the matter is it is happening. It's a, a, a terrible security issue. And the number one responsibility of any government is to protect their people. And that's what the Nigerian government isn't doing. And, and by the way, this is a democracy. Rabbi Cooper, first I've got to ask what many of our viewers are probably wondering, why did an Orthodox rabbi get involved in writing a book with an evangelical Christian about Christian persecution in Nigeria? Well, you're asking uh, quite a bit, so let me try to parse it out. First of all, uh, Reverend Johnny Moore is one of, I think, the youngest recipient of uh, a major award from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, a Jewish human rights organization. Uh, for his previous work in Iraq, where he saved uh, Christians who were going to be ethnically cleansed 
figured out a way to raise the money and evacuate people to a, a new life in another location. We're all about uh, human rights. We're all about taking action to help each other. And we have very simple uh, approach when it comes to religious freedom. If religious minorities, if Coptic Christians, for example, in Egypt can't pray in peace, uh, or Jews in Scandinavia go to synagogue without being harassed, uh, or Muslims uh, without being targeted uh, by hate crimes, um, then uh, none of us is safe. Stalin said one uh, death is the, a, a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. So when I started uh, seeing the reports coming out uh, in, in terms of um, the selection process uh, in, in a, uh, uh, a university dormitory in the middle of the night, people woken up and said, you know, could you recite the Quran? And, and if you couldn't, they slit your throat because you were a Christian. Other kinds of activities that, that harken back to uh, another area, uh, era when Jews were uh, selected by the Nazis. Johnny, how concerned are you about the lack of police and Nigerian army response? Because many Nigerian Christians say uh, both are complicit in kidnappings and murderous attacks on Christian villagers. What is your conclusion? Well, it, it's, it's not so much our conclusion. We documented in the book some really alarming facts. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, in, in several incidents across the country, you know, evidence has been found, cell phones that were left behind. Uh, one, one cell phone had in it the telephone numbers of people in the security services. Uh, there, there are hardly any examples of anyone being prosecuted for any of these crimes, uh, despite the fact that there is a judiciary. There is, the, the government has all of the infrastructure it needs, it's just not using it. Now, and, and ultimately, I mean, our, our passion here was to tell the stories of the victims because they are voiceless. And so we wanted to be, be their voice. And our hope is that the more we tell their stories, the more we can awaken the conscience uh, of, of people all around the world and therefore also shame the leaders and the government there who are, who are choosing not to take action that they, that they could take. And the, and the fact of the matter is already in 2014 and 2015, Terrorists in Nigeria had killed more Christians than ISIS did in Iraq and Syria at ISIS's height. Rabbi Cooper, what about uh, some girls like Leah Sherabu? I understand from reading your book that you weren't too happy with the response some Muslim leaders gave about the kidnapping of Christian girls. You tell about one girl who was kidnapped, forced to convert to Islam, and then was impregnated by her Muslim captor before she was finally released. Tell us about the indifference or even complicity of the Nigerian government and religious leaders there? Well, uh, uh, Johnny and I met with four leading imams, uh, which of course raised plenty of eyebrows at the hotel we were staying at. You know, a rabbi, uh, uh, four imams, and a pastor sit down in, in Abuja, Nigeria. Um, and what we heard consistently was, they said, well, wait a second, we're, we're the number one targets of the extremists. Why are you only talking about what's happening to Christians? And yet we try to sort of say, fair enough, if you can document and send us, we'll for sure include it. But in the meantime, you, you have to speak out, including and especially if you're a Muslim. Young people in Africa today, in the Middle East today, in the Maghreb, they don't want to hear ideologically fueled reasons to hate others. They want to have a future. They want to have a job. They want to be able to see the rest of the world. So we're at a tipping point 
And as it turns out, it looks like Nigeria right now is the number one target uh, of the terrorism. And uh, the U.S. and the United Kingdom hold tremendous clout. And our book also argues that Christian faithful, the churches and individuals, have tremendous potential power here to change things, but they have to get involved. Newsmax says these two men are among America's 10 most influential religious leaders. So up next, more from Abraham Cooper and Johnny Moore as we take you to the home front and a look at rising persecution right here in America. More now with the Reverend Johnny Moore and Rabbi Abraham Cooper. Rabbi Cooper, we've just looked at persecution in Nigeria. We know what is happening in America today to Jews and Christians doesn't even compare or come close to the atrocities being committed in Nigeria. But still, the rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Christian bigotry in the United States is alarming. It seems that Orthodox Jews in New York are being targeted and unjustly blamed for the spread of COVID-19. Even some Muslim groups have rebuked Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio about that. So tell us what is happening in New York. Well, it's a situation that in many ways has spiraled out of control because of the failure of leadership. Uh, it was, before COVID, we already had uh, a spike in violent anti-Semitic uh, crimes in the New York area, the area that has the largest number of American Jews, uh, shocking attacks, uh, and then came uh, the virus and everything else that we've been dealing with. When I say failure of leadership, let me be perfectly blunt. It's from the top of the political leadership of not showing um, sensitivity, especially to Orthodox Jews around uh, the fact that their, their synagogues and, and schools are central to their lives. But it's also, frankly, a failure of leadership of elements of the leaders of the Orthodox community, meaning we don't need, I live in LA, we don't need a governor or a mayor to say, put on a mask or make sure you're socially distant. Uh, a fundamental of Jewish law is if your life is in danger, or if, God forbid, you could even coincidentally maybe put someone else's life in danger, take the necessary steps to do so. We all need to do more. But on the other hand, for the governor and the mayor and other leaders in New York to talk about uh, the, the power of, uh, of uh, Orthodox Jews and, and, and to uh, take particular and sometimes singular focus only on a particular faith community is deeply uh, distressing. Uh, and so in that sense, we don't really have um, uh, real, I think, to, to point to leaders who, who've gotten this right. And at the same time, the Wiesenthal Center has spoken out when Christian churches have been targeted during the course of the riots that are associated in the aftermath of what happened in, in, uh, in Minneapolis, the murder of an, of an innocent man by a policeman. How concerned are you, Johnny, by the continued erosion of religious liberty right here in the USA during and even possibly to come after the pandemic? Well, yeah, you, you expect these things from an obscure professor at some, some university, but when the New York Times, barely into the pandemic, runs a headline that says the road to coronavirus hell was paved by evangelicals, I don't care how you cut it. That's just bigotry. It is absolute bigotry. And the fact of the matter is that the evangelical church uh, at, at the height of the pandemic not only was shutting down the churches and moving online and taking appropriate measures, 
but was in fact disseminating information to millions and millions of people. Evangelicals were getting more information than the media itself to, to our communities of millions. You know, this, but this is really simple. In the United States of America, it is appropriate at certain points, as in many, many months ago, to restrict freedom for the public good, but you have to do it equitably. Probably the most glaring example was in Nevada, uh, where where you could have a casino at 50% capacity, but you couldn't have more than 50 people in, in a church. Uh, and this is why it is so incredibly important that we build these broad coalitions to say, you can have your political fights all you want. We celebrate it in the United States of America. We love the marketplace of ideas. But when you touch the First Amendment, we're all, we're all coming out in force to vote. And we are never, ever going to let it go. And you let it go by one inch, and it's not long before you've given a mile. Well, after reading your book, I think the takeaway for me was speak up. Be a voice. Don't just sit and be silent about what is happening, whether it be in Nigeria or right here in the USA. Okay, the book is The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. The Reverend Johnny Moore, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you both for sharing your time and insights today. When Hispanic unemployment hit a record low of 3.9% in 2019, President Trump said his economic policies made that happen. The latest statistics for September show the rate at 10.3%. That's because of the pandemic. Will the president's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and fewer jobs cause Hispanic Americans to reject Donald Trump at the polls next month? Well, here to weigh in is political analyst Julio Rivera. Mr. Rivera is editorial director for Reactionary Times and a featured columnist of the Washington Times, the American thinker, Epic Times, and Toronto Sun. Julio, it's good to see you again. So before we discuss issues of concern to Hispanic Americans, I, I must say most politicians seem to think of Hispanics as a unified voting block, but that really isn't true, is it? Because after all, I know Puerto Rican culture, a lot different than, say, life in Chile. Isn't it a mistake for politicians to think Latinos all vote the same? Exactly. No, it most certainly is, Gary. I think that there's a lot of different flavors of Latino and Latino politics. You know, people have different sensibilities. You have a lot of social conservatives that reject the liberal policies of the modern Democratic Party, especially when it comes to those social issues. You know, they're vehemently opposed to abortion on demand. They're pro-traditional marriage. And, and on a lot of issues, they just don't really correspond to what the Democratic platform currently is. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of uber-liberal Hispanics as well, but to, to go ahead and try to lump all Latinos into one group is generally a mistake when politicians do do that. Well, let, let's talk about some specific groups of Hispanic voters here, Cuban Americans in Florida. Most are probably more conservative because either they or their relatives fled the Castro regime and communism. Which way do you expect them to vote, Biden or Trump? Oh, I think that they will be firmly in the corner of President Trump and, and, and work as hard as they can to reelect them. I happen to know many Cubans and every Cuban, it, it's universal as far as the ones that I've been lucky enough uh, to uh, you know, come into contact with throughout my life. They're all 
very pro-conservative. They're very anti-communist, pro-capitalist. They they hate Castro. A lot of them, as you mentioned uh, previously, you know, they they had negative experiences with that regime. One of my best friends, his family actually um, owned a chain of what would be smaller grocery stores in Cuba that were seized uh, once the Castro. Uh, regime uh, took power back in Cuba. So almost universally with every Cuban that I know, you know, they're they're all very much pro-capitalist, very pro-Trump, and they're all very politically active, which is one of the, the best things that I can say about the Cubans that I know. Well, that make, may make the difference in winning Trump Florida. How about Puerto Ricans? Mm -hmm. I know that's dear to your heart. The governor there endorsed President Trump. Will that make a difference for him there? I I think it may. Um, I'm, I was shocked by that, to be quite honest with you, because, you know, Puerto Rico has been so firmly uh, liberal for, for so long, um, you know, and even the, the parties that are supposedly the, the right wing parties in Puerto Rico would be considered moderate to probably, you know, a Democrat, standard Democrat, not the socialists that we're seeing nowadays. So there, there, there isn't really any true right wing stronghold amongst Puerto Ricans. But one thing that the uh, governor of Puerto Rico correctly pointed out was the fact that the politicians in Puerto Rico were responsible for withholding aid that FEMA and President Trump worked very hard to get to the Puerto Rican people very quickly. And we found warehouses and stockpiles of uh, you know survival supplies that were never distributed. I mean, this is something that hurt my family you know, uh, very much directly. I know that with PREPA, the Puerto Rico Electric Authority and all their fraud, you know, uh, raising billions of dollars to go ahead and supposedly shore up the infrastructure, kept uh, Puerto Rico in the dark for months. And as a, a consequence of that, my father, who was receiving dialysis treatments at the time, had to go an extended period without receiving treatment and wound up dying about six weeks after the Hurricane Maria made landfall. Many Latinos are Catholic. Families, everything mm. to them. So how important is the pro-life issue for them while choosing a president or when choosing a president? Uh, I think that for, uh, you know, social conservatives in the Hispanic community, and this is generally across the board, across all voters. I mean, you do have some blacks that are uh, pro-family uh, social conservatives and whites as well. But particularly with uh, Latino Catholics, I think that they, they, they're very happy with what they've seen with President Trump. He's certainly been a pro-life president. I think that that extends as well to Mike Pence, who is a strong social conservative and has always set a, a remarkable example for Americans. Um, you know, I think that they're going to be firmly in the in the Trump camp. But then in your urban enclaves, you know, in your New Yorks and your Los Angeleses and your Chicago's and, you know, in certain areas like that that are very liberal, you do have Latinos that are unfortunately, you know, very, uh, you know, far out, you know, almost extreme social liberals that believe in a lot of the things like, you know, the unfortunate things like, you know, abortion on demand up to, you know, birth, you know, which is which I find disgusting and, and I think any any rational person should, regardless of their religion. Okay, finally, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction here. Donald Trump received 29% of the Latino vote in 2016. So what percentage do you expect he'll get this time compared to Joe Biden? I think that, and I and have been asked this before, I think it's going to be in the low 30s. I think he may even beat, I believe it was 32% from George Bush in 2004, I believe was what the number was. He may be in that range because Latinos have done great under Trump. You can't hold the coronavirus pandemic against President Trump because, as you see, the United States economy is already roaring back you know, where a lot of economies have completely fallen apart as a result of COVID. I would expect next year, as President Trump has promised, to be the strongest economic year in the history of America.
Okay, political analyst Julio Rivera of the Reactionary Times, thanks for sharing your insights. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, Gary, and God bless. So you say you're an evangelical Christian and you haven't decided who to vote for? I'm here to help, but not in the way you think. I'm not endorsing any candidate. We live in a time when scandal, corruption, and sexual depravity are everywhere, from Hollywood to Washington. And guess what? God has called us to be salt and light in the midst of the darkness. One way you can do that is to vote His way. Yes, God ultimately puts our leaders in power. The Bible assures us of that. But He does expect us to be good citizens, and a big part of that is participating in the process to choose our leaders on a national, state, and local level. So when you go into the voting booth, ask yourself, how would Jesus vote? Would He only vote for the righteous, those without sin? Guess what? If you read the same Bible I read daily, then you know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean he approves of the sin, and we shouldn't either. But remember, you're not voting for pastor-in-chief or a chaplain congressman. You are choosing flawed people to be our leaders. We're all flawed people. So are our leaders. What we do vote for are people who pursue righteousness and godliness with their votes and their actions. For evangelical Christians, the right to life is of utmost importance. So are you voting for someone who believes a woman has the right to end a life just moments before birth? Why would you do that? If you are opposed to abortion, then how can you support someone who will vote to perpetuate it? Israel is also of utmost importance to evangelicals. It's the birthplace of our faith, and we have a shared heritage with the Jews. The Bible says those who bless Israel will be blessed. Do you want to be blessed? Do you share God's love for Israel and the Jewish people? Then why would you vote for lawmakers who support groups and policies that would weaken or destroy that nation? Do you believe the U.S. Constitution was inspired by God? Then why do you support politicians who want to take away our God-given rights, freedom of speech and religion? In the Pinocchio movie, Jiminy Cricket sings, Always let your conscience be your guide. Evangelical Christians, when it comes to voting, always let the Holy Spirit be your guide. So cast your ballot, and if this election doesn't turn out the way you want, remember the outcome is ultimately in God's hands. Don't sweat it. He, not Joe Biden or Donald Trump, will have his way. May God be with our nation this election day and every day, and we with him. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, Parler, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.